Hey there, welcome to today's episode of Connecting With. Today we're joined by the wonderful Mike Hyam. Mike started off in the entertainment world as a recording engineer for record producer Trevor Horn and has worked with artists such as Sting, Eric Clapton, and Seal. He later moved on to become a music editor and supervisor on feature films such as Bridget Jones's Diary, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Alice in Wonderland. He's very versatile with his music skill and knowledge, having played the bass and drums on records for artists such as Tina Turner and Rod Stewart. With all these incredible achievements, I'm excited for you to be able to hear more about Mike's journey and the importance that building relationships have had on his career. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. How's everything going? Very good. Thanks for having me here, Jules. It's lovely of you to uh, take the time on a very snowy uh, Surrey countryside. I'm looking out of my studio window. It's freezing cold and there's about uh, two and a half inches of snow. So the world's come to a good chaos. (laughs) And we were talking a little bit earlier. It sounds like it's had a bit of an effect on your day, but hopefully it's not been too crazy. That's uh... pushed me a little bit late. uh, Thanks for your patience, Jules. No, of course. I mean, I really appreciated you getting back to me early in July last year uh, when I'd reached out to you. And that was actually the spark which had inspired me to create this podcast. So I'm very excited to have you on as a guest. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm quite curious, how did you then get your start as a recording engineer at first? Okay. So uh, it's a mad story and uh, I'll try and keep it as condensed as I can. But um, I studied music uh, from a young age. I started playing the piano when I was about 11. And then I went to a music college. I lived down in Devon in the southwest of England. And um, I went to a great music college called Dartington College of Arts, which was one of the last remaining arts colleges where you had theatre, theatre students, art students and music students. And I uh, went there at the age of 17 and did my A-levels. But alongside that, I was also carrying on with my piano, classical piano education and learning composition. And I... From about the age of 14, I started getting involved uh, with technology. And I think I, I bought my first, I had my first little keyboard, which was a Casio VL Tone, which was a band called Trio, actually had a number one hit with way many years ago. And my parents bought it me for Christmas. And it was a tiny little keyboard. And I'll never forget. And I just, I just learned everything about this thing. And you could actually do a little bit of programming on it. And it had a little synth on it. And uh, when you look back now, it's, uh, you know, it's crazy. It's almost like a toy. But um, I just got hooked with technology. Then when I was 16, I managed to um, get a part-time job and saved up. And I bought myself a DX7. And from that point onwards, I was just hooked in synths and transferring my piano classical training to playing synths and composing in my own uh, bedroom. And, uh, and then I went off to Dartington and did uh, my A-levels and carried on with my piano, as I mentioned. And then I went to London, where I did a degree in music. And when I finished my degree, I thought, oh, my God, now what? You know, and being a kid of the 80s, I was a huge fan of uh, a legendary record producer called Trevor Horn who I'd always admired his records. I think the first time I'd heard uh, Slave to the Rhythm by Grace Jones, I just needed to know who made that record. I was like, 
oh my God, this is a masterpiece. And um, ever since I heard that record, I wanted to uh, be a, a producer of some description. And um, so when I finished my degree, uh, I was crashing on this couch in East London. She was a teacher. And uh, I wrote with a pen and paper, because this was like 1991. Uh, I composed a proper letter, put it in a post box, and sent it to uh, Psalm Studios in West London uh, for the attention of Trevor Horn. And uh, I posted that letter on a Monday. And of course, it was madness because you know i need i need to use the analogy if i wanted to get into politics it would be like writing to the prime minister so um off went the letter and i got a phone call on the tuesday lunchtime and it was this lovely lady called marty claiborne who was working at psalm studios and she said hi there we've just got your letter trevor would like to meet you and i nearly collapsed i thought what well, i've just written a, you know a letter so I think it was the Wednesday off I went to Psalm Studios and I was interviewed uh, and I met the great man himself. And what was fascinating was Trevor was on the phone to one of these helplines trying to get some uh, help on this piece of software that he couldn't quite work out how to use. And uh, he turned I, I turned around and, and thought, oh my goodness, I know what he's trying to do because I'd used this piece of software at my uni. And I thought, oh my God, what do I say? What do I? So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to say, excuse me, but if you go to the so-and-so menu, go to there, there'll be a little sub-menu and I think that's what you want. And um, I got the job and I was hired as Trevor's technical assistant. I was given a car this is 1991. I was given a car, I was given a mobile phone, and I was given a laptop. And I was Trevor's tech, basically. So I would be in charge of all his keyboards, guitars, multi-tracks, everything. And Trevor would like to move around. And we moved all over the world making records from Ireland to LA to New York. I'm 22 years old at this point and pinching myself. And Trevor knew that I was a musician. I told him about everything. And I think that appealed to the fact that I was classically trained. And it really, I asked him, you know, uh, a few years later, I said, why did you, why did I get the job? And he said, no, I like the fact that you'd been to university and you'd studied. Because Trevor's a man of working out a song on a guitar and making sure that all the harmony and everything is correct. He's a sublime musician. And that was it. And I worked for Trevor for six, uh, for five years. I was staff. And then I went back and worked. I went uh, freelance in about 1996, 95, 96. And Trevor would still ask me to work um, as, a, as a freelance engineer and programmer. So I basically learned engineering from people uh, who uh, were working at SOM. And I was, it was just, I was just in at the deep end, you know, I knew about engineering because I'd studied some of it at uni, but actually recording people like legendary recording artists, I was terrified, but I had some great engineers, Tim Widener, Steve Fitzmorris, people like that over in um, Psalm and they taught me and I went out to LA in about 1993 where Trevor was making a Rod Stewart album and 
it was just me and me and Trevor went out there and I ended up recording Rod in his summer house. We took a Pro Tools system. Pro Tools back then, you couldn't even drop in. You couldn't punch in. Uh, so I developed this whole way of working out and we became pretty uh, big beta testers for DigiDesign back then. And they're now avid, of course. But um, we, yeah, sort of pioneered the use of recording into a computer. I think so we just had some internet connection issues, as happens. So we're just going to pick up from the part about DigiDesign. So, okay, so I'll, I'll pick that up again. So going back to when we were recording uh, Rod Stewart, I, uh, we ended up being uh, really useful to DigiDesign as beta testers because we were pushing the equipment to the limit. And we were recording uh, through their interfaces, uh, and back then, of course, the technology was so early, uh, but we used to try and develop different ways of doing it. Um, and uh, they were very grateful. And uh, I think back then, there was so few people using what's now known as Pro Tools HDX or whatever it's called, uh, which, of course, most people now use as a multi-track. I mean, there's nobody using, very rarely, people are using analog or digital multi-tracks anymore. It's all basically Pro Tools, isn't it? I mean, everything's hard disk space now. Um, yeah, so we were at the cutting edge of that, which was amazing, exciting times. Wow, I bet. I mean, it does sound pretty incredible. And it also seems like, you know, to tie things back in, like that one connection you had made in that instance has had a huge impact on the rest of your life. Would that be fair to say? I have my entire career... Uh, you know, I have Trevor to thank for every every step of my career up to where I am now. And when I, the fact that he used to ask me to go back and work on a freelance basis was was wonderful. You know, and I got to work with, you know, Seal. Uh, I worked on two albums of Seal's um, music: uh, Tina Turner, Rod Stewart, The Pogues. Oh my God, it was, it, it was huge stuff. And uh, I really was pinching myself as a 24, 25-year-old and it sort of had an exponential rise in, in what I was working on. And, and Trevor taught me everything. And the most important thing he taught me was, you know, to try and be a producer is you have to be a politician as well as a, as a good, have a good pair of ears and all the other skills and, 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 you know, being a musician is, is being a politician to try and get the best out of the artist. So I'm very grateful for everything that he has done for me. So like how you said, you know, you kind of have to be a little bit of a politician, you know, as a producer, then how do you then go about that? You know, managing, all of these different people, because, you know, there's the creative side of things and also the technical side of it. How do you manage all of that? I think nowadays, uh, my current project is I'm working on the Little Mermaid remake, which is a massive film for Disney. And I think one of the aspects you learn when you're working with people who predominantly, you know, they're now they're actors, they're not singers, you know, they would come in and, you know, they are, they are actors. So they, you have to give people confidence. You have to make sure people have got as much support as they want from vocal coaches, uh, from, from vocal warm-ups to anything, but also having a great team around you. I work uh, my last projects for the last seven or eight years. Uh, I've 
I now work with an engineer called Andrew Dubman, who is the chief recording engineer at Abbey Road Studios here in London. And he's fantastic. And he's so good with technology and really embraces technology. And uh, the way we interchange files, you know, I sort of have a duplicate system to him. So I can uh, just take a hard disk and carry on developing and working on songs. Uh, and then I can send the files to Andrew to mix. Or if I want to tweak something, Andrew's uh, great at collaborating like that. So um, I do my 99.9% of my time now is production because, you you know, it's hard to be a producer and an engineer when you're working on such a huge project, well, especially with multiple people, because you're trying to manage people's expectations, you know, that you don't want people to come in and not feel like you, you're 100% devoted to them. Um, you know what I mean? And you never want to keep people waiting. But, but you know, the, the, the politician, to explain the, 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 you know, the politics of it all, is you kind of have to make people feel like um, nothing's ever a problem. What they're about to stand in front of a microphone, it's not the only time they can ever get to do this. Because some people think I'm going in there and they'll get red light syndrome and they suddenly bottle up and they can't record and they're nervous. Whereas you've got to let them, you know, understand that, hey, you could come back tomorrow, time allowing, and we can just pick up where we've been. So if you only want to sing two verses and a chorus today, then that's fine. And then we'll carry on again tomorrow. So you kind of just have to be just a people's person and realize, you know, if somebody's not feeling it one day, then you pick it up the next. So you kind of have to read people, their mood, you know. So, you know, it's it's just like life, really. You know, it's you never want it to be feel like it's a major deal when somebody walks into a recording studio, you know. You want them to be relaxed and and not have that terrifying feeling when the red light comes on, you know. Especially if they're if they're an actor and not a not a singer. So, have you then also experienced that yourself? I know when you said you're in those very big sessions um, a little bit earlier on, did you feel that fear? Absolutely, doing a piano overdub for one of Trevor's sessions, and the moment they and back then it was the tape, so you'd have to wait for the rewind of the tape, and you've got like you know forty five seconds while the tape rewinds, and then it's like okay, let's go again, and you've got the, the music there, or maybe it's just you're just ad libbing, so there isn't any music, and you're playing either a synth or a piano. Of course, when the moment that you're going to record, because you know that what you're doing is 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 being etched in time, isn't it? You're creating something that people can pause, they can rewind, they can keep listening to it. Was that any good? You know, and, and you're doing it for somebody like Trevor, you know, it's like, oh my God. Uh, so yeah, I've suffered from that as well. But I think because I've suffered from that, move on 25 years, 26 years later, I put myself in the position of the performer that's doing something for one of my productions. And I, I'm completely sympathetic and I'm really lucky that, I mean, back then I wasn't a professional musician, but I get to work with some of the best musicians on the planet now. And I'm really lucky. And of course they're used to recording, but even so, you know, there's still an expectation from them to, to, to deliver, to deliver. So you always want to make them feel as relaxed and, Never tell people something's really great if it's not. That's one thing I've learned is if you think they can do it better, 
then just say, oh, you know what, can you just try changing this, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it be. But just saying that was great. Let's get another one. Why am I asking for another one if that last one was great? I think you have to be honest because performers will read into that and think, yeah, yeah, you just didn't like what I did. You know what I mean? I was working recently with a percussionist and uh, he's an amazing percussion player. And uh, he played a uh, bongo part on one of the songs for The Little Mermaid. And, and I said, hey, Paul, can you just, uh, can we get another one of those? It was just a little bit, the timing was a bit odd. And he was like, was it out of time or you just didn't like the feel? And he kind of shocked me because he was so, he was so direct with what he asked me. And I said, no, it felt out of time to me. And I was absolutely honest. And he went, no problem. I was just trying to play with the feel, you know, the groove. But I felt it was just the timing wasn't right. So I told him and the next take we did was perfect. But he was experimenting as a great percussionist of trying to create a different vibe. But it came across to me as feeling, no, it didn't work with the track. It wasn't what I had in my mind for, the, for that moment. But uh, again, honesty is the best policy when you're trying to produce somebody. That's what I think. Wow. I mean, is that something which you've then had to develop over time? Because I imagine, you know, especially when you start off in such huge sessions that it might feel a little bit nervy to say to somebody who's been working at it for years, oh, that was off or... Absolutely. And, And I would never have dreamed of saying that 15 years ago, but I think that's one of the things you learn. And the way that you go about doing it is the really is the as being a great politician you know like if you ask uh, any of our current members of parliament a question if you notice they never answer with a yes or a no they always just they can either tap dance around the answer somehow and they can almost satisfy the uh, journalist's question but for me i just um i i don't tiptoe now i i try and think of a different angle to try and get what i'm looking for Or I'll say things like, why don't you come into the control room and have a listen? Because nine out of 10 times, if you involve them in that process, they'll understand what you're trying to reach and the goal that you're trying to get to. So by bringing them into the control room, so you bypass that horrible goldfish feeling, as I call it, because if you're in the control room as a piece of glass and they're performing, it's very much me and them. So if you bring them into your world and let them hear what you're trying to achieve, then you're going to get to your result a lot quicker, I think, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. I just thought also just, you know, for someone who's listening to this, who's maybe not sure what a music editor is or a music supervisor is, could you go over that a little bit just to give some insight to that? Of course. Well, I I mean, I worked as a music editor for probably 12 years because, you know, towards the end, mid to end nineties, you know, the record business really with the likes of Napster. And then as iTunes started to develop, people were just budgets for making records were just going through the floor. And, you know, so many records made nowadays are still made in people's home studios or bedrooms. It's unbelievable because the budgets are just so you know, unless you're a major artist, you don't get the budget. So I, by the end of the nineties, I'd always loved music and film. And I loved the, the, what music can do to a moving image and that I was still going to be able to get my music love. But I also loved, as I say, what it did to, to, to film. And I, 
sort of started again in my career uh, as not working when I wasn't working for Trevor. And I, and I sort of went into the film business, not really realizing what my job title was, if there had to be one. And I was, uh, because I could compose, I was working as sort of a ghost writer. I was writing music for other composers. And also my sort of my main bread and butter earning a living job was being a music editor. And to answer your question, being a music editor, there's several roles to that where you have to, on a film, you're sent a film with no music on. And you work with the director and the editor to try and come up with some temp ideas. And that could be whether you're composing the music or you're taking music from other existing soundtracks and you create what's called a temp score, which allows the film and the director to try and, you know, make the film feel as, as finished as possible by using existing music uh, so that, that they can go and screen it to an audience to give them the full sort of cinematic experience, you know, and as you develop. And then when they hire the composer, the composer's got a rough idea of the sort of direction that the, the, the uh, director's uh, wanting to go with the music because there'll be an existing temp score. So that's the job of a music editor. And then moving on to working with the composer, uh, you know, you act as a sort of interface between the composer and the director. And you also work as somebody who um, facilitates anything that needs to happen on the recording sessions in relation to picture timing. So if you want to manipulate tempos to make a particular piece of the music hit a particular time in the film, uh, or if it needs to be moved, then you can work out tempo changes in a musical way to make that work. And that's uh, another role of a music editor. So it's quite, you've got to be quite versatile. Uh, I, I sort of stopped, I sort of did that, as I said, for sort of maybe 12, 15 years. And, and then sort of, sort of came full circle uh, and then went back into my production. And then alongside the production, the music supervisor uh, role, which there's so many different job descriptions from music supervisor in film because a traditional music supervisor people would think of as somebody that would go in and see a director who wanted to fill a film with loads of needle drops as we call them where you know you've got a film and then you suddenly hear some songs uh, and a music supervisor would work with a director to, to to offer up some song ideas for scenes and then if the director liked them, they would then go away and liaise with record companies to secure the rights for the song to be used in the film. Uh, I don't do that side of music supervision. I'm very much more the creative side of music supervision, which has sort of become a new role because of, uh, of film musicals. Because as a, as a, you know, if you're making a feature film, uh, which is a musical, you kind of need somebody who understands about record production. You need somebody who understands about how the process works from the ground up. And that's my area of music supervision. And I'm really lucky because I, I've got the production chops. I, that's what I am now. I am a music supervisor and music film producer, if you like. That's, that's what I have done for the last eight, nine years. 
And my first film that I had that role on was Sweeney Todd uh, for Tim Burton, because I met Tim Burton back in 2004 as a music editor. And I was doing lots of extra bits and bobs. And then I ended up being a music supervisor on quite a few of his films when Danny Elfman was composing, because they've got a long, long relationship of 25 plus years. And uh, when it came to Sweeney Todd, of course, Tim wasn't going to hire Danny Elfman as the composer because it was the music already existed by Stephen Sondheim had written the original score for Sweeney. And uh, I'll never forget, Tim just sent me the CD of Sweeney Todd from a Broadway recording from the 80s with Angela Lansbury. And uh, he said, do you want to listen to this? Make head or tail of it of me. And here's the script. I want to make this film. And he'd hired Johnny Depp as the barber, Alan Rickman as the judge, Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett, to name just a few. And it was such great fun because all of a sudden, eight years after I'd sort of, no, maybe 10 years after I'd sort of finished in the true sense of the word, the record business, purely. I was back making essentially a, a double album because the way that it works, you make the music, which we call pre-records, and then you play those songs back to the artists on set as they're acting and they lip sync to themselves. Or as I always get them to do, they sing along with themselves because if they sing along with themselves, you see their neck muscles moving. So you can really understand that they're singing and uh, that project was 22 months of my life that I had such a brilliant time. And uh, getting to work with Johnny Depp and Helena was just hilarious fun. And uh, so I was, ba- I, you know, I was making, like I say, two, two, a double album. Uh, and then I adapted this score and also wrote lots of new uh incidental music uh, for the film that I then had to uh, have a screening with the great Stephen Sondheim who came and listened to it and was over the moon with what I'd done. And then from that point onwards, um, I was then asked by Rob Marshall, who is one of the legendary film music makers, uh, film musical makers, should I say, who, you know, made Chicago, Nine, Into the Woods, Mary Poppins Returns, and now The Little Mermaid. And I've been lucky enough to work on Into the Woods and Mary Poppins Returns. And uh, I've sort of been, I've sort of been given that uh, task or role of of being uh, Mr. Musical, a film producer now. Uh, And uh, it's great because I get to do all the things that I learned about and then I've also got my love of film. So it's a perfect job for me. <laughs> if that's a long way of basically giving you a, a, a quick history of going from being a music editor to then a, a film music producer. But to, to be a film music producer, you really need the film to be a musical so you can create those tracks, you know. And, and on The Little Mermaid, uh, getting to work with Alan Menken, you know, who originally wrote this, 30 years ago is a dream come true because I'm getting to work with a legend, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm a very lucky guy. It definitely does sound like a very exciting project to be a part of. And I'm, I'm excited to hear how that shapes out. Yeah. Well, you'll have to wait a little longer. Right? It's, it's not coming out for a little while. We've just, 
you know, obviously we've all been hit by uh, the coronavirus. So uh, we had to uh, went into lockdown for about nine months on the movie. And uh, we're just about to start filming uh, in about 10 days time. So the beginning of February 2021 and we'll uh, off we go again. So uh, really looking forward to to getting on with it. Oh, that will be pretty exciting. And just hearing the overview of that all, it just sounds like everything's incredibly busy, you know, with all of the different projects you have going on. And so I'm very curious how you then manage with all of the work on those projects. And, you know, I think it was 22 months you said you're working on Sweeney Todd. Like, how do you manage to then maintain these relationships and also build new ones at the same time as working on these projects? That's a really good question, Jules. Um, I, I think maintaining the relationships, I, I think the classic and the, the one thing to say about the film business, you're only as good as your last job. I'm sure many people have heard that. And I always give my all to every project I do. And uh, my wife will uh, agree with that because there's many times when I've missed my kids' birthdays and all kinds of things. And I think it's just about dedication and, and devotion to what you're trying to do. And I think directors see that you're really wanting to do your utmost. And that's why I've, I think I've done 12 films uh, in various roles for Tim Burton. And now I'm on my third film uh, for Rob Marshall. Uh, I've done about three or four films for Paul Greengrass, one of the great, makes some great gritty films, you know, such as United 93. I worked on that film. And uh, yeah, it's, I think you, you just, you, it, it really, it's, it's, you're as good as your last job. And I think that directors remember you. And so I'm very lucky that the phone rings when they make another film and say, we'd love you to be involved. As far as going out there and trying to get new jobs, I honestly, Jules, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I am in my career, but luckily people phone up and ask for me. So I'm touch wood. I haven't had to go out looking for the work, but that might well happen one day where the phone doesn't ring, but I'm pleased to say at the moment it does. Wow. So, I mean, it, it sounds like then once, you know, you're a part of these jobs, you then give your best and, and you're, you're making sure that you are connecting, truly connecting with these people and really helping them bring their projects to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. And, and my biggest advice to anybody listening who wants to get into this business is to just do that. You have to devote yourself. It's because if you don't, there'll be a queue of a hundred people behind you who will. That's very powerful. I just wanted to know also, if you had to restart your journey with a music or film, is there anything that you would do differently? Wow. What a great question. What a great question. I think I would have got, if hindsight's a wonderful thing, and sometimes there's been projects that I won't talk about that I've taken, and a month into the project, you realize I kind of had an idea that this wouldn't work for me because what people have to understand is when you sign up for a product project, you are basically living with these people for months, if not 
a year at a time to make the project because you, that's what you're doing at the end of the day. You're making a product that can go to the cinema or it can be put on, on a CD or a turntable, whatever it is. And you just spend so much time with these people. I think to answer your question, I would learn to say no a little bit more in the respect of if I think this project, perhaps I'm not going to to gel with the type of subject matter or or the people that are making the film whether or not you've heard that they're incredibly difficult to work for or they're very impatient or they're rude or anything like that i think my younger self i would have said you know what i'm going to wait for the next one but of course when you're hungry and you want to do the work you'll take the job but it's it's it can sometimes be a bad decision if you haven't gelled with the with the with the project or the people so i think doing anything again if i could have my 30 years that i've been involved in this music and film it would be to to say no a bit more and not work so and also not work so crazy you know there was one year i think i had two days off uh at Christmas time, I think I had two days off at Christmas, but I basically worked every day of the year and I was working so hard uh, because you just want to, you just, you're just so enthusiastic and so excited to be in the, in that moment, especially when you're younger, which at the time I loved. But what you realize is if you keep doing that, it's exhausting and you need time to reflect and, and being self-employed. One of the beauties of being self-employed is that you're supposed to be able to control a little bit of your own time, but you can't (laughs) not in this business. You can't really, once you're in, you're in, you know what I mean? And, uh, you just give everything your all. And I think that's when successful people become successful is because you you're not going to make that extra step. If you're only, if you're only going to work nine to five, five days a week, you know, you have to go that extra. I mean, even now I still work till one, two a.m., uh, one or two a.m. Uh, to sort of complete pro- projects and because you want it to be as good as you can. And, you know, I think I now, now know when it's like, okay, that's as good as I can get it. I remember Sting saying, reading, he didn't say it to me, I remember hearing him say, you never really finish a project. You just abandon it. And that's such, that's so true because you either run out of time uh, and somebody says, we have to release this or you just can't do any more on it. So you sort of abandon it because you kind of go, this is as good as I can get it today and it's got to go. So there you go. But uh, it's, it's just hard work, Jules. And, uh, but it's really enjoyable. And I don't feel what I do is a job, which is really nice. And I think the moment that it does feel like a job is the moment to stop. That does sound very beautiful. I mean, I'm glad that you're able to continue with it. And it just sounds like you're bursting with passion and enthusiasm with it all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it, it, it comes out in the work that you do. Definitely. So you've worked with a very wide range of people. Um, is there anyone who you would still like to work with who you haven't yet? Uh, 
yes, but unfortunately, I never will. I would love to have done a project with David Bowie. Mm-hmm. I would love if I'd ever have had the chance to 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 work with him. That would have been amazing because uh, I love his records. Um, Peter Gabriel, love to uh, love to do a project with him in some way because I, I love his sensibility and I love his music. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, Peter Gabriel. I just think the guy's a genius. Um, and in filmmaking terms, as, as uh, you know, those were musicians. But in uh, directors, I'd love to do. Uh, you know, I'd love to work for you know Martin Scorsese. Uh, love to do a film for him in some role, and um, and Steven Spielberg, of course. Those would be incredible, and I'm hoping that that does come through for you. Me too. (laughs) Thank you. Going back to the story with you and Trevor Horn, I mean, that was just a really powerful moment. Yeah, no, it's a crazy story. Just thinking about it, could you imagine what would have happened had you had written that letter but decided not to send it? I know. And that's the, I mean, that's sort of, it's a great lesson for life, isn't it? That you've got to just do something. You know, don't think that this is a crazy, silly idea. And if I hadn't sent it, where would I have been now? I might, who knows? I could have just been still desperately trying to to get somewhere in the music industry. But he, as I said to you, I'm so grateful for for what Trevor did for me and my career. And he's such a generous guy. And and yeah, thank God I wrote that letter. Thank God that they opened it. Thank God it got there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean that honestly that that story is just something yeah it's just really powerful and that's the sort of thing which I wanted to talk about on the show. Yeah, and I I think when I did that talk at at Ellie's University, I I I told that same story and you could see people sat there like with their mouths literally open going, "Really? You did that? You actually wrote to somebody?" because it seems such an old-fashioned thing to do now. Uh but I think if you're brazen enough to just think, no, I really want, I want to go work for that person. I think you could teach me everything that I, and I really admire all the work you've done. Uh, I'd love to come. And I think some people respect that, you know, that somebody wants to do that because they're not going to be around forever. And you need the new fresh blood who are going to be taught that, that trade, if you like. I think I would, I was lucky enough that I could almost call it like, um, it was almost an apprenticeship about record production. And um, shortly after my time in working with Trevor, uh, the two friends of mine uh, were songwriters that were really, I don't want to say they were struggling, but they hadn't hit the, the point of real success. And they signed up with a manager and the manager bought them these five girls and said, do you want to write some songs with them? And um, my friends Absolute, they're called, Paul and Andy, they're great guys. And they said, hey, Mike, do you want to come and you know do some programming on this stuff? And I was like, yeah, great, love to. And, uh, and the five girls that were brought to them uh, were the Spice Girls. So I went and worked with those guys for a few months on those records. And working on their first album. And then the second album came along 
And it was ridiculous because you knew the expectation that everybody had because the first album was so huge. There, there was this massive pressure for, for my friends who were the producers to, to, to produce another great album. And I, as I say, I was working as, a, as programming stuff, keyboards and stuff, and doing vocal um, recordings and stuff with, the, with all of the girls. And it was a crazy time. But again, I would never have imagined that that one, you know, working for Trevor would then take me to, to that other world because, you know, that was a different side of pop than Trevor would do because he was working with not generally older artists, but um, he wasn't sort of known as Mr. Pop. Uh, he was in the 80s, but in 90s, he was, you know, he was sort of, he was more... Um, middle of the road stuff i'd say uh but it, one thing just leads to the other i think you know what i mean so once you've proved that you can do one thing you then get asked to do other things and i couldn't believe i was working with the spice girls on the second album because it was crazy it was it was hysteria i imagine it was like when you, people were working on the beatles albums because there was i remember being in studios when there was thousands of teenage kids outside the studio trying to get a glimpse of the girls and it was it was mad times it was mad times i guess that's definitely such a shift to things now you know you just saying people like gathered outside the studio i was just thinking you know well now with what we've had with you know the whole pandemic and everything you just wouldn't have that you couldn't have that at all and so i mean i was curious how you know maybe maintaining connections or even building new ones has changed for you since the start of the pandemic? Oh, that's been, I, I've been lucky enough that when the pandemic started, we had just finished pre-recording most of the songs for my current project. So I just finished production on, on the songs and we were just finishing the vocal recordings and then we got locked down. So everything stopped but I, then i carried on mixing uh remotely with my engineer andrew so i was at my studio he was at his studio so during the lockdown we were still mixing and tweaking stuff so the idea of having to make any more connections during that time wasn't so important for me but one thing that did become important uh, in fact as a connection is a lot of the musicians during the pandemic uh, couldn't go into studios. So a lot of, of great musicians in London were just not getting any work. And it was terribly sad. But the ones that were working were the ones that had like a home studio set up or they at least had a microphone. So I met new people because of that, where if I wanted a new guitar overdub, I'd be introduced to somebody new because it's like, oh, hey, this person's got a studio. So th that introduction, so... So positive things came out of the pandemic for me because I got to meet new people who were able to work remotely. So I could send them a backing track and say, hey, can you four guitar parts on this? Um, and that was, that was great. So there has been positives. There's been a lot of negatives, but there's been, there has been some positives. But, uh, but for so many musicians, uh, this time has been just awful because it was only up until August last year that uh, 
orchestras and studios were allowed to work again. And of course they have to work in a completely different way. They have to be socially distanced in the studio. So it's going to be very interesting that the recordings made during this pandemic sound different to the traditional way because you can't have the traditional orchestral layout as if you would pre-pandemic. So that's a really fascinating thing. Wow. So I guess we're going to have to listen out in the future to see how that's affected that. I, I believe some films have even recorded individual people. So everybody's just been sent, you know, a click track to play to. And they've put their violin part and then the next person's put theirs and then somebody's had to edit them all together to create an orchestra. I've heard that's been happening on some product uh, projects. So that's, that's pretty crazy to think of the work and the post-production work that's had to go into that. And everything will just sound different. So there'll be a period of going, oh, yeah, that was the pandemic recording. <laughs> so uh, it's fascinating. Also, like if there was then, just before we wrap up, if there was, you know, you had come across somebody, they had maybe bumped into you in a cafe or something like that. Let's just picture this as, you know, post or pre-pandemic times. And they like bump into you at a cafe and, you know, they're an aspiring film music producer. What would your advice to them be? Is this pre-pandemic? Pre-pandemic. Okay. Because, you know, it's it's different now, isn't it? Um, Maybe we can have both if if the second one pops to mind as well. I, I think if they, if they were an aspiring uh, film music producer, I would say to them, do as much as you can for any student films, any short films. Don't think you can just go straight into a film and start doing your ideal job. You have to think, how am I going to do this? Well, I tell them the story of what, how I got into the music business. Um, even though Trevor Horn didn't make films, it still was a huge uh, step up for me. But I would tell them to contact somewhere like the Beaconsfield Film School, find a final year student who is, uh, wants to be a director, and they've got... Uh, they want to put some music in their movie. And then I would say, okay, I'm going to help you find a composer. I could indeed compose it myself if they're, if they're a talented composer as well as producer. And then do that, but be willing to do it for no money. Throw all of your spare time into it and do something. Because, and this is the big thing, that student who leaves that film school as going to have something that somebody's really cared for, for their part of their student film they've made, somebody might hear that and go, wow, the music's really interesting. And then that's how the spider's web of contacts work. So that would be my biggest advice. Is And then same with short films. If you've got somebody who's made a 15-minute short or a five-minute short or a 30-second minute, a 30-second short, offer to help them with the music. Help, offer to help if they want help trying to find a song for it, if they want a score for it, if they need somebody to go and find a vocalist for it. Go and offer to do it for them and show them what you can do as a producer to produce something for their, for their project. Because then that way, if they get any traction from their project, 
you're going to get the same traction because people are going to go, hey, the music's really good. And then all you ask for them is when they credit the film, please just put my name so people know who I am and take my details. And that would be my biggest, uh, that, would be, that would be what I would explain to somebody who wanted to do what I do if I bumped in, the, into, in, the, in a cafe. And if it was during the pandemic, it would be exactly the same advice but you'd just be doing everything remotely. So email people, email people. Hey, can I Zoom you and talk about your music for your film that you're making during lockdown? Loads of people made films during lockdown, whether, you, whether you're a student or you're just fooling around with an iPhone. 99% of the time, the film's going to need some music. So go and offer to do it. Go and offer to do it for them. And I bet you nine out of 10 times, people who are, who are really wanting to get their their project out of the door and make it as good as they can are going to want your expertise because if you want to be that person, you're going to have some skills to be able to do it. So then do them and prove to these people that you can do it and don't expect to get paid, but just remember that you get the credit and you take, they, they take your contact numbers and then that's what happens. It's sharing the love, isn't it? And you just pass it on. What an amazing way to wrap things up. Thank you so much for that, Mike. I hope it's of some help to your listeners to 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 uh, to think about that. You know, it's not just a, a dream that you can get into into the business. You just have to be prepared to 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 do what I've just explained. You know, and and cream will always rise to the top. Wow, that's beautiful. I just really want to commend you, Mike, you know, not only just for your incredible work, but just with how involved you are and how warm you are in terms of also, you know, sharing your knowledge with others. I really do appreciate it. And I'm very certain that it will be helpful. It's my pleasure, Jules. And, uh, and I, I look forward to it. And I hope the podcast is uh, as of, uh, of some, uh, some help to your listeners. It definitely will be, I'm sure. Thank you for that. Wow. I hope you've really enjoyed this episode of Connecting With, where we spoke with Mike Hyam. What a wealth of knowledge and experiences he's kindly shared with us. I really do hope there's something in this episode that you can take away to help you on your journey. Personally, I'll be listening through this episode so many times because there are so many gems in there. If there's anything in particular which inspired you, it'd be amazing if you could let us know by leaving a comment on social media or by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. If there's anyone in particular you'd like to hear on the show, please do let us know by dropping a comment. I've been your host, Jules West, and this is Connecting With. <laughs>